Today's scripture reading is from Daniel 4, 28 through 37. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among, among men, and ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven, till his hair grew as long as an eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High God, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, And he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my Lord sought me. And I was established in my kingdom. And still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. God. So one of the ways that we can stay sharp and wise and faithful uh, as followers of Jesus Christ is to make sure that we're always uh, putting ourselves in a position to learn from people who come from other cultures, other life experiences, and other seasons of history. Did you know we're actually part of a history? We're part of a long unfolding story that started before we even existed and that will continue after we're gone. And uh, this year in particular, the year 2017, is the 500th anniversary of what has become known by the history books as the Protestant Reformation. And so what we're going to do for the next 12 weeks or so is a series on what we're calling the anchor doctrines uh, that, that, that flowed from the Protestant Reformation. The title of the series is A Love Supreme, and uh, as we start this series on the anchor doctrines of the Reformation, uh, we're going to start with the anchor doctrine to the anchor doctrines, and that is uh, in the Latin, soli deo gloria, which means to God alone be the glory. Uh, we're talking about the supremacy and centrality of God, His sovereignty. And so, um, there, there are two reasons fundamentally why people come to Nashville. The first reason is uh, for bachelorette parties. <laughs> and the second reason, and this I, I think accounts for at least part of why there are somewhere between 85 and 100 people a day moving to Nashville, and that is to chase dreams. So Nashville, you, you probably know this, has been co-opted into 
the long-standing love affair between cities like New York and Los Angeles. Many of you are from New York. I actually, having come from New York, truly have more New York friends, New York City friends in Nashville than I do in New York City now. Uh, gave a hug to somebody who just moved here recently from Los Angeles right before I came up here. Uh, both New York and, Nash and, and Los Angeles have referred in their major newspapers to Nashville as the third coast. Why? Because it's a city of progress, higher education, publishing, entrepreneurism, government, social action, arts and entertainment. It is Music City, the city of the stage, right? Nashville is a place where a lot of people come in order to give it their best shot to make their mark, to become great, to advance the glory of their own name. What's relatable to this reality is something that Kanye West said about himself some time ago. He said this, I'm going down as a legend, whether you like me or not. Don't you think that I would be one of the characters of today's modern Bible? My greatest pain in life is that I will never be able to see myself perform live. I am Shakespeare in the flesh. So I thought Shakespeare was Shakespeare in the flesh, but why are, why are we irritated by comments like this? Except that they boisterously reflect the realities that we ourselves are hiding in our own hearts. We don't like, we are irritated with glory-hungry people because we are glory-hungry people. And they might steal our slice of the glory. That's why we resent people who get ahead of us. That's why we look down on people who are behind us. All of us have an inner Kanye West. We demand to be the heroes of our own stories. We also demand to be the heroes of one another's stories. Your life should revolve around me. And you think that my life should revolve around you. It's a human condition. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, of ancient Babylon, is a cautionary tale about this posture. And so, I want to uh, explore this anchor doctrine to the anchor doctrines, to God alone be the glory, under three headings with respect to Nebuchadnezzar. Number one, the trouble with too much self-esteem Number two, the supreme wisdom of worship. And number three, the humiliation of God. So, so let's start with the trouble with too much self-esteem. What I mean by this is the bigger we act, the smaller we become. The bigger we act, the smaller we become. The more like kings we behave, the less like kings we actually are. You, you might be familiar with the, the ancient uh, Greek myth of Narcissus. We get our word narcissism from this ancient Greek myth. It's about a beautiful 16-year-old boy who uh, is swimming in the Styx River, and he stops at a pool of water because he's thirsty, and so he wants to get a drink. And as he's reaching down to get a drink from the pool of water, he notices his own reflection. He sees his own image 
in the pool of water. And as the story unfolds, it becomes clear that Narcissus cannot take his eyes off of his beautiful self. He falls in love with his own image, and it becomes a permanent fixation that makes him incapable of giving love and incapable of receiving love. And the more obsessed he becomes with his own image, the uglier he becomes, the more isolated he becomes. And the, the most tragic thing about the myth of Narcissus is not the disintegration of Narcissus as much as the, the most troubling aspect of the myth of Narcissus is it's not a myth. The reason why we connect so well to and so deeply and so viscerally to the Greek myths is that we identify so much with their protagonists as well as their antagonists. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon replaced the beauty of Narcissus with the career success of Nebuchadnezzar, and you have virtually the same story. You see this? Did you hear it in verse 30? I have built the great Babylon by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty. And he had an incredibly impressive legacy by, by any human standard. He, he built what became known as the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, which, which were one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. His palace was massive and luxurious, and his empire was completely dominant, just completely taking over and, and you know, with, with his scorched earth approach, completely taking over other nations and subsuming them under his lordship. He was a lot like Nebuchadnezzar was, the Wall Street investor. Uh, if, you've, if you've ever read Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities, you remember there's a Wall Street investor who finally reaches the point in his career where he's making seven figures. And, and Tom Wolfe gives uh, some insight into his psyche after he starts to make seven figures. He writes this, in his heart, he thought of himself as a part of that elite little group of people, masters of the universe. By my mighty power, for the glory of my majesty, I have really gotten on top of the world. But what happens when you go the way of Narcissus? What happens when you go the way of Nebuchadnezzar with whatever success God gives you? Two words. The first is tyranny. If you look back just one chapter in chapter 3, you'll see where Nebuchadnezzar, the wildly successful Nebuchadnezzar, builds a statue in his own honor, and, and he creates the state religion. And the state religion is, you worship me or else you die. You bow down to my statue or else I will throw you into fire, into a big fire pit. You will become barbecue. And so you have these three Jewish worshipers of Yahweh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who will not bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's statue, and he makes good on his word. He throws them into the furnace of fire, and God miraculously delivers them from that fire, and, and, and yet still, in having witnessed and experienced that still in chapter 4, he, he, he is completely full of himself. He hasn't quite learned. So, uh, Lawrence Slater of the New York Times, a number of years ago, released an article in, in the New York Times 
called The Trouble with Self-Esteem. And this was, uh, here's an excerpt from that article. Of all the studies about self-esteem that have been released in the United States, all of the studies had the same central message. People with high self-esteem pose a greater threat to those around them than people with lower self-esteem. Feeling bad about yourself is not the cause of our country's biggest problems. Theory, one of the main culprits that has led to a narcissistic, self-esteem-driven and oriented culture is parenting philosophy. Specifically since Dr. Spock released his book and, and, and we shifted from, from a marriage-centered home to a child-centered home in terms of the way that our, our, our homes are run and operated. Kids get participation trophies even though they don't accomplish anything. They get congratulated for doing nothing. No moral judgments are ever passed on our kids. No discipline is given. And when our children misbehave and they get caught, we bail them out instead of allowing the consequences to teach them a lesson. And then we tell them how wonderful they are instead of how poorly behaved they've been. I've told some of you an experience I had in a New York City elevator once uh, that started on the 26th floor. I got on the elevator, and, and, and a, a mother and her, you know, six-ish year old daughter got on the elevator as well, and the six-ish year old daughter ended up pressing every single button on the elevator from the 26th floor. And so, so I'm just sitting here as we stop, and then we stop, and then we stop, door opens, nobody's there, closes, and I'm late to an appointment already, and um, around floor 17, the mother looks at me and says, isn't she just adorable? <laughs> and what I wanted to say was, no, she is a brat with a codependent mother. <laughs> That's what she is. And the only reason why you're saying that she's adorable is because you are scared of her little Nebuchadnezzar self and the way that she will punish you if you don't continue to affirm the message to her that the chief end of a human being is to glorify her and enjoy her forever. That her chief end is to glorify herself and enjoy herself forever. That your chief end is to glorify her and enjoy her forever. The longer you send that message, either explicitly or implicitly, to your child or to your 80-year-old mother, that person is going to be aloof to the preciousness of others, that person will lack empathy, that person will be entitled and mean. The more you worship a human being, the meaner they become. You think they're going to be more kind, they'll be more mean, more entitled, more self-centered. And what this kind of parenting can produce is anxiety, loneliness, and even psychiatric disorders. See, you become a tyrant when the world revolves around you. Whether it's your world or somebody else's world, you become a tyrant. Pray that God would give you peace. If you get successful, pray that God would surround you with people who will push back on you and tell you the truth. And don't push them out of your life and don't throw them into a fiery furnace. 
The other thing that happens with Nebuchadnezzar, in, in, a, in addition to becoming a tyrant, is that he becomes humiliated by his own narcissism. One of the commentaries said this, pride defaces your humanity. God was saying to Nebuchadnezzar, because you insisted on trying to become more than what God made you to be, you will become less than what God made you to be. Because you aspire to be more than a man, you have become less than a man. And we see this, and it's playing out in verses 31 and following. He becomes more like an animal than a human being. It says that he's eating grass like an ox. His hair looks like eagle feathers. His nails are like bird claws. A psychiatrist would, would, uh, would look at this and, and possibly identify it as a condition called lycanthropy, which is a psychotic condition in which a patient thinks himself, of himself more as a beast than as a human being. There's this golemness that, 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 that happens when you become your own precious, when you become your own ring of power, you, you, you end up destroying yourself eventually, eroding your own humanity, becoming less rather than becoming more. And so, the caution here in this cautionary tale of Nebuchadnezzar, the, the story of King Saul is almost identical as a cautionary tale as well is that the more set we become on becoming masters of the universe, the more we will be mastered by the very worst things about the universe. The more we act big, the smaller we become, the more we fall in love with our own name and the sound of our name, the more our name will be diminished. So, there is trouble with too much self-esteem. But then there's the wisdom of worship if you turn your eyes away from yourself, you've got to turn your eyes towards something much bigger. And that answer here is God. Verse 34, it starts this way, at the end of days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned from me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion, enduring from generation to generation. All inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. There's a gracious irony, by the way, to this. As soon as Nebuchadnezzar makes himself nothing, God restores him into a something. The moment that Nebuchadnezzar ceases to act with all of his bravado like the king of kings, God restores his kingship to him. He goes on, when my sanity returned to me, so did the glory, majesty, splendor of my kingdom. I was established, more greatness added to me than ever before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor Thee, definite article, one and only, Thee, King of heaven, for all of His works are right and His ways are just, and those who walk in pride He is able to humble. So, the way Tim Keller um, process this text as he said this. This is Nebuchadnezzar admitting that he had been a cosmic plagiarist. So, those of you who are authors and professors and, 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 and artists, you, you know how violating it feels when somebody steals your work and claims credit for it. This is what Keller says is happening with Nebuchadnezzar. He is stealing credit from God. He is falsely 
taking credit for authoring his own life story, especially at the pinnacle of his success. Isn't that incredible how when our life story is going poorly, we blame God? Why did you write my story this way? And when our story is going well, look what I did, the glory of my majesty. See, he was stealing credit because the story of his success belonged to God and God alone. There's another king, King David, who wrote in Psalm 139, verse 16, all of the days ordained for me were written in your book before any of them came to be. See what he's saying? You are the author and finisher of my story. You are the sun. I am the moon. Nebuchadnezzar is the moon trying to become the sun. You know, the moment we start taking credit for our career success, the moment we start taking credit for, and this maybe it's not boisterous like Nebuchadnezzar, maybe it's not boisterous like Kanye West, maybe it's just there in our hearts, there's this smugness about us, there's this certainty about us, this superiority about us that my kids turned out this way, therefore I am all that. Guess what? God is a, an infinite better, infinitely better parent than you are, and look at how so many of His children have turned out. The way your beautiful children have become beautiful, it's not because of you. You are not the wild success of a parent any more than God is a failure as a parent. Off your pedestal for your own good. You know, when we take credit for all this, for the house we live in, for the work we've done, for our intellect, for our creativity, we become cosmic plagiarists. We become the moon pretending to be the sun. You know, in all of us, there's this, there's this voice that says, in the better season, seasons, I worked for this. Look at this, for the glory of my majesty, for the, for the building of my brand. And that's partly true. There, there is hard work. There are some legitimate attaboys. You know, we're all anticipating that well done, right, at the end of the story. Except in the gospel of Jesus, isn't it amazing? The well done comes at the beginning of your story instead of the end, so you live out of God's favor instead of trying to earn it. How crazy is that, right? We really have to ask ourselves the question, if, we, if we're, you know, saying, I worked for this, we have to ask ourselves, how much of my situation am I really responsible for? How much did I make happen without assistance? Zero. Zero. You know, those factors that are not under my control, that give me advantages over people from other times, other places, other life situations, other skin colors and cultures, other nations who have different resources than I do, who have less network capacity than I do, who have a lower IQ than I do, who have less talent than I do at this or that. Those, those things were all gifted to me and to you. I can't take credit for my IQ. I was born with an IQ. Same with you. I can't take credit for being born in the most affluent, prosperous, forward-moving country in the history of the world. I can't take credit for that. 
any more than a poor little girl can take the blame for being born in Calcutta and living all of her life on less than two bucks a day. You see, this American idea of a self-made man, this, this American idea that you can be born on third base and take credit for hitting a triple, it is a total myth. Everything we have, everything we accomplish is a gift. It's a gift. We are not the sun. We are the moon. And the purpose of the moon is to reflect the true light and to point back to the glory of the source of all of the light that is shining off of us. God is the author of our achievement. God is also the author of our faith. The other thing here, you know, just looking at Nebuchadnezzar's mojo, our mojo, it has a shelf life as well. Even Nebuchadnezzar realizes this when he says, only his dominion, God's dominion is everlasting. Only his kingdom endures. So, this past week, two things happened. Number one, the iPhone X was evangelized, and now, you know, you can apparently pre-order or you can pre-order soon. It was released, magnificent technology. And the other thing that happened is Scott Sauls came across this excerpt from Steve Jobs last week. Steve Jobs said this, "'Remembering that I will be dead soon is the most important tool I have ever encountered to help me make the big choices in life, because almost everything, all external expectations, all pride, all fear of embarrassment or failure, these things just fall away in the face of death, leaving only what is truly important. So, John Calvin, love him or hate him, he was one of the central figures of the Protestant Reformation. There have been nations and cultures formed around the thought of John Calvin, not to mention robust, you know, theological structures and such. He's probably, you know, arguably outside of the writers of the Bible, the most significant influential theologian in the history of the world. John Calvin, when he knew he was about to die, made the request that his grave would be unmarked. And to this day, nobody knows where John Calvin is buried, because what John Calvin wanted was for the moon to disappear and for the sun to continue to shine, because it was much more about the God to whom his work pointed than it was about him anyway, ever. You know, we can either go the way of Nebuchadnezzar or we can go the way of the unmarked grave. See, we go the way of Nebuchadnezzar for the honor of our own name. That we set ourselves up for our names being forgotten. We, we go the way of Calvin for the glory of God's name. And it, there's this tricky way that people like John the Baptist, he must increase, I must become less. People like Calvin, people like the Apostle Paul, they, they become, remember, we're still naming our sons after them. People name their dogs after Nebuchadnezzar. All inhabitants of the earth, verse 35, are accounted as nothing. It's just another way of saying every bit of human greatness is a gift. It is a ray of light from the sun that is on loan. It bounces off of you, and, and, and you, you are wise to angle 
your person so that that light bounces off of you right back to the source where all the glory belongs, rather than diverting away from the source to your own honor and to your own glory. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. How is this accomplished? Through the humiliation of God. You know, Nebuchadnezzar built hanging gardens in his own honor, and yet in the Scriptures we find Jesus with His head hanging in another garden called Gethsemane. You can put that image up if you don't mind, if you have it available. This is a picture taken this past week by one of our pastors, Russ Ramsey, who is in Israel right now. This is the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus bowed before His Father as He was about to go to the cross, saying, Lord, if this cup might pass from me, may it be so. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. The great prince of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, summarized that moment in this way, Jesus Christ stoops in order to conquer. How did He conquer? He conquered by letting Himself be conquered. And what happened next after He prayed the Gethsemane prayer, the prayer of surrender, tyrants went after Him like animals. Tyrants went after Him like pit bulls. And He was humiliated, mauled, and marred, dehumanized, made like Gollum. Think about these words from Isaiah 52 that describe uh, before the fact that the future crucifixion of Christ, that He will be high and lifted up and exalted. What will that look like? Will that look like Him building a statue in His own honor as Nebuchadnezzar did and throwing people in the fiery furnace if they don't bow down? That's not the picture that we were given. Again, there was no hanging garden. Instead, we get the king himself hanging on a tree. And it says in Isaiah 52 that he was so disfigured that he was beyond human likeness. He was dehumanized. His humanity was not even discernible, not recognizable to the human eye because he had been torn apart by the animal instinct of narcissism. Why did He do this? Why did He go through all this? To restore our humanity to us, to restore our reason, to use Nebuchadnezzar's word, and to restore our sanity, using another word from Nebuchadnezzar, back to us as we turn our eyes away from ourselves and away from our own hanging gardens as if we had the capacity to become one of the wonders of the world, turning our eyes away from our own hanging gardens toward the Garden of Gethsemane, toward the tree upon which the mauled and marred one hung as if he were an animal. Look away from yourself. Look to Jesus. Give Him all the glory that your reason and sanity might be restored to you. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, you are so generous and you are so kind to give us cautionary tales, lessons to be learned from the foolishness and the wisdom 
of Nebuchadnezzar in this passage. Father, for those of us who have been so foolish as to live as if we were the center of the universe, as, we, as if we, the moon, could usurp the sun, Father, would you give us the grace of repentance and renewal and restoration, even as you appear to have done so with this king? And Father, would you take us all toward the second half of this Nebuchadnezzar narrative, that our sanity through Jesus, through turning our eyes away from ourselves and toward Jesus, would be returned to us so that we will be established. And so more greatness might be added to us than ever before because we're basking in your greatness. May we, like the King Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven for all His works are right and His ways are just, and those who walk in pride He is able to humble. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.